Hey guys, this is Chirag, and this week I wanted to share one of our favorite episodes from last year. The story behind Surfhouse Dubai and the tale of adversity. Now, we thought our new listeners would really enjoy this one, but we think even our veterans may find something new to take away. Support for this episode comes from Heart Talk, Navigating Difficult Conversations. Listen in to find out how you can get your hands on a free signed copy of the Heart Talk Handbook. Enjoy the show. What happened in 2012 was uh, devastating, um, destructive in a sense, and uh, exactly what we needed even in a way. We were just kind of told, like, cease everything you know, that you're doing uh, or your utilities are not coming back. Challenges are almost an expected part of the process of being an entrepreneur. But when you've done everything in your power to keep going and somehow the odds are still stacked against you, where do you go looking for that ray of hope? That sustainable passion to keep that tiny flickering light at the end of the tunnel in sight. So pull up the chair and join the conversation with Scott Chambers, founder of Surfhouse Dubai, who told us the tale of true resilience. From Amaya FM, I'm Chirag Desai, and this is Tales of the Trade. Scott's journey is closely tied to the UAE which is where his love for surfing first began. My parents first came to the UAE in 1967. Uh, my dad worked in oil, so that's why uh, Brazilian Portuguese were here at the time. And uh, yeah, I was born in 83 in Sharjah. I think I spent a year here before going back to Brazil. And my parents traveled quite a bit around Europe and the States. And we came back in 92. This country made me. It was my formative years as well. Uh, a really unique upbringing, as, as you guys will know, I think. I actually, I learned how to surf here. Uh, again, which is something that always spins people out. They assume, being from Brazil, I, I learned there and came here and was like super sad because there's no waves here. My elder brother was uh, my hero and idol uh, as I was growing up. Still is, actually. <laughs> Things were on the record. We learned how to skateboard first when we were living in Canada at the time. Uh, he always had an affinity towards boarding sports, and I just did everything that you know that he did because he was my, my idol. And then when we moved back here and we were living on the beach, he said, all right, well, now we're going to surf because we're on the beach. I was around 10, honestly, from the first wave that I properly caught. Uh, he had pushed me in at the time. I still remember that one wave, and riding that wave was, like, the most insane uh, and indescribable experience that I'd ever felt. And from that point, I just went, there's nothing better than that. And I was like just hooked and it was all I could think about, all consumed. Scott holds a formal degree in surf science and technology. Yeah, we wondered the same thing. How do you get a degree in surfing? You know, that combination, I guess, of, of timing and a bit, yeah, a bit of chance. After finishing high school here in Dubai, I was actually going to the UK, had followed a girlfriend at a time, and I was about to do a business administration course. I think it was three weeks before starting that degree. One of, one of the papers at the time showed up, and there was a PM slating this course called Surf Science and Technology. And I just saw the title, and I went, <laughs> hang on, what? A degree in surfing. So I called him up and uh, sent all my applications through and I got the acceptance quite quickly. So I called up the University of Bath this three weeks before I was supposed to move there and start and deferred my entry and I said, I'm not doing business admin, I'm, I'm going to Plymouth to do surf science. It just, in my gut, it felt a lot more right to do that rather than something that I just thought was practical and made sense and that everybody else was doing. The degree was heavily scrutinized, not just by academics in the country, but also by, you know, my circle of friends and family. Luckily, my family have always been 
uh, really supportive of any sort of crazy idea that I might have. So they were behind me. I, I sold it to them well enough that they still willing to pay for the tuition fees. But then, yeah, I had, you know, lots of friends that were, were kind of skeptical and, um, you know, wanted to give words of, of caution that uh, it was a new degree. But yeah, it just, you know, being younger at the time as well, you kind of, I think I'm more ready to, to leap on a chance that feels right to you. Full credit to the the lecturers that put it together, and that they created what they call a general graduate pool that you would be part of if you were to do the degree. So there was enough of a, a spread and breadth of subjects. The idea was that if you didn't come out and work for a company like Rip Curl or Quicksilver, you could still then you know, apply to, to any company and have the basic school level to be able to fit in at an entry level. You weren't kind of like destined to a life of <laughs> being a beach bum. And so you, you got this degree, and then what, what made you want to come back to Dubai? Circumstantial factors that um, at play at the time, whereby for me, my immediate family were all still based here in Dubai. Um, and so where I still sort of felt like bound to in a way with, with them all here. I was witnessing this industry in the southwest of England that was exploding. And the way I saw it, they had everything against them. Like they had really shitty weather. They had often like long drives to get to surfable beaches. Um, on top of that, you know, putting on all the rubber that you need to get in the water there. And, and not really great waves, to be honest, most of the time. But the average conditions are not great at all. And that was still a, um, I, I give credit to the, the sport of surfing, that the, the allure and, you know, the fun of doing it is so strong that people still, you know, want to go through those efforts to be able to, to ride waves. And I was seeing that industry there in the Southwest thriving with um, a lot of challenges, you know, for it to thrive. And I thought to myself, well, Dubai's got waves. There might not be great waves, yet it's a lot easier to go surfing. You know, most people live close enough to the beach and no one was doing anything with surfing. So I kind of had this, this idea that with my love for a sport that had given me so much already, it, it felt like a nice thing to do to be able to show other people how awesome that sport is and also that you could you could practice that here in the middle of the desert which nobody really knew at the time this was in the summer of 2005 and scott started to look for ways to combine his passion for surfing with earning a livelihood i kind of went with you know the the quickest first step to be able to start showing people that you could surf here and for me that was teaching people how to surf we didn't really have access to much equipment here so i ordered three learner boards from the uk and I just started to, you know, with friends and family, tell them that I was going to just teach them how to surf for free. I just wanted people to experience that joy of riding a wave. The reception you get after a surf lesson when people ride their first wave, I still haven't seen anything else like it when, when people kind of turn around and they've got a smile on their face that they've just, they've never had that sensation before in their life through anything they've done. And, you know, they're just so grateful for having experienced it. So that you know, straight away, it's just it's such beautiful feedback that it gets you motivated and excited to just do it more than giving people private to sometimes small group lessons and, and people talking about it, Dubai being as, you know, word of mouth based as it is, people just instantly started, you know, I started getting phone calls all the time of people wanting to learn how to surf and being blown away that they could do it here. I, had, I remember this point, this was a couple of years uh, into it even, but uh, I remember drawing um, like a vision board for my dream scenario the picture that I would like to see of, of this beach out front, actually. And it was just, you know, lots of people in the water on different kinds of craft, people enjoying the water through different means, places to, to rent equipment. It was uh, contests going on for kids. It was just, you know, 
uh, a community that was embracing the sea and, and the waves that you do, in fact, get here. These were encouraging signs, no doubt. And while no one had any idea how everything would be thrown upside down later on, the story of Surf House had relatively humble beginnings. The, the story is actually, I guess that's what we're here for, but it's, it's a long, it was a long journey, um, starting off with, with three surfboards and from there ordering more surfboards to be able to give larger group lessons uh, and then working with schools, actually. I started approaching schools and showing them not just about the physical practice of the sport, but also teaching people, I think, some of the things that have been forgotten about the, the sport or art of surfing, and that's an understanding of the weather and the ocean and the elements, and also being responsible as a beach user. You know, it, it's one thing to, to learn how to stand up on a surfboard and ride a wave, and it's another to, to begin understanding why those waves are there, why they're good that day and not good the next day, and then also to understand that in order to carry on enjoying the water in that way, you need to be thinking about the current state of our coasts and, and where that's going. So it was awesome to start uh, indoctrinating new kids into the sport in a way that I felt they needed to be. So uh, teaching schools, that kind of, it took it to another level where I then needed uh, certainly more, more help and hands because we were dealing with much larger groups of kids. And at that point, uh, my business partner, Dan, uh, in 2008, he'd come back from Australia where he was surfing a lot, and he hadn't, he'd done a degree in sports management. And when he came back out, I knew he was someone that was as passionate about surfing as I was. And uh, he was looking for work, so I said, hey, would you like to come in and help out as a surf instructor with me? And yeah, he was super keen, so he joined, and we started being able to cater for bigger and bigger groups. We were teaching so many groups, and, and weekends um, were really busy. At this point, we had a huge fleet of boards, and we were renting equipment. Um, I'd started bringing boards in as well because that was another need. Um, you know, people having access to the right equipment. And yeah, it dawned that this whole little community that was being built up, it really needed a, a focal point. And the reason we were going through all these mobile locations of business were because at the time I had a license out of Knowledge Village to teach surfing, uh, but there were no places beachside that was key for us that were zoned in a way where we could have that kind of a license linked to it so this was our dilemma while well, we had to stay mobile for yeah four years since starting in 2009 we were friends with a couple that lived on the beach and i'd always looked at that house and gone well if i could run surf house dubai out of there that would be the dream and uh, yeah one day they said we were leaving so walked into the house and you know it was really good sized space and it was right there on the beach and I kind of knew that one way or another had to get this place. Uh, it was more rent than myself and Dan could afford at the time. Um, it was more space than we needed at the time. But I just knew that we had to just like throw everything at it, find a way to take it and, um, and also find a way that we could legally run our club out of there because it was a residential home. That villa and its great location by the beach would become both what Scott calls the focal point of the surfer community in Dubai, and also the source of its upheaval. We found a way to scrounge together the funds to take on the tenancy. Then we approached a friend of ours, who's I can't name, who was very behind what we were doing. Uh, her kids were surfing, we were teaching them how to surf. She gave us what I still call till today uh, an exceptional pardon or endorsement uh, to run what we were doing as a sports club at that location. We had three, three and a half years where 
the surf community just kind of not just quadrupled but you know it grew like tenfold because all of a sudden there was a place where people could come to learn the sport if they had no idea about it they could pick up the right first board the equipment that they you know that was suited for their ability and and a place for people to just get together to discuss ideas when they fell in love with the sport one of the nicest things was being able to start a lesson talking about the conditions you were about to go into by having that vantage point of of the terrace that we sat on 20 yards to the to the action and uh yeah it was instrumental i think in really kind of growing the community at the time um what happened in 2012 was uh pinnacle uh, devastating um destructive in a sense and uh exactly what we needed even in a way the amount of support from the community that was existing was was immense from friends family people that you know would just go out of their way to get in touch and just voice their appreciation really heartfelt sentiments um continually throughout those harder years and and that absolutely helped us along the way to you know keep fighting the good fight because in 2012 uh one of our neighbors uh at this location seemed to have some sort of a problem with uh the surf club that was running they began making a series of phone calls to the department spelling being having grown up here we were very respectful of of this country and the culture and we just wanted to have a dialogue there to understand what the issue was that he was having and and to try to resolve it you know so whilst we approached him and asked what it was that was the issue in that conversation he said that he didn't really know what we were talking about and that he had no issue with with anything whatsoever we went away thinking okay that's that's just strange and uh funny enough the next day though we we found out through another source that at same was again on the phone making making complaints so up until this point if anyone had any questions or issues with what we were doing we were able to to relay this to our friend that had given us that exceptional pardon and everything was spoken about communicated and resolved but it got to this point where it was 6 months in of daily complaints that uh one day we had the guys come in they opened up our mains box uh they had a bolt cutters with them and a soldering gun and they they started off by like cutting the mains and then and soldering the the ends of the um the wire shot so there's no way for reconnection if you know you know if we wanted to so all of a sudden we had no electricity or water <laughs> and we were like wow didn't didn't see that coming like to that yeah we were just kind of told like cease everything you know that you're doing uh, or your utilities are not coming back Walt Disney is quoted to have said all the adversity in my life all the troubles and obstacles have strengthened me You may not realize it when it happens, but a kick in the teeth may be the best thing in the world for you. When we come back, how the year that took everything out of Scott's and Dan's dreams for Surface eventually played out. Support for today's show comes from Hard Talk. Hard Talk is about having those difficult conversations. For instance, this commonly asked question. I have a colleague. I like him. He's really good at his job, but guess what? He stinks. In fact, he smells so bad that we've actually stopped asking him to join meetings with us. I I know it's not great. We talk about it behind his back, but how do I actually tell him? The author of the Hard Talk handbook is here with us. Don, can you help us out? That is a difficult question, and it's one that comes up all the time. 
Really, what you have to do is focus on your purpose in this conversation. Why is it you're telling them? It's not because you want to humiliate them. It's not because you want to embarrass them. It's about giving them information that they don't have that they could usefully use. So think about that. Think about your purpose and share that with them. Nothing changes without a conversation, so it's time to make the hot dog easier. Listeners of the show can get a free signed copy of the Hot Talk Handbook by sending us your favorite hot talk moment. You can do this on Twitter, just tag Team Hot Talk and us, or even on Instagram, just post tagging Team Hot Talk and Tales of the Dot Trade. And your favorite hot talk moment can be one that you aced, it can be one that you bombed, or it can be one you don't quite know how to handle just yet. The best one will get a free signed copy of the book, so you can make those difficult conversations just a little bit easier. For more information, visit hardtalk.info. Our thanks to Hardtalk for their support of this show and Amaya FM. Maybe as much as I'd like to say I'd, you know, fight till the bitter end, maybe along the way I just, at the critical moments, I had, you know, angels along the way that sort of gave me the little nudge to just walk a few more steps until, you know, you'd kind of cleared that canyon, maybe. Welcome back. You're listening to Tales of the Trade and the story of Surf House Dubai. This episode is produced by Gaia, and original music for the show was composed by Reiner Erlings. Now, underneath all the glitz and glam that surrounds entrepreneurial stories today, lie the story of failure, challenges, and true adversity. Those stories that don't always make the front pages, but can set you back years, sometimes even decades. Just like in 2012 when Surfhouse's venue had no electricity or water and had been told to cease operations. Yeah, we were kind of perplexed at this point. We were confused, you know, disheartened, of course, and it was, it was pretty devastating, as I said. We just kind of, you know, we went out to try to find a solution, and that was by just going straight and, and talking to, to the powers that be um, and asking them for explanations and, and trying to at least enter into a dialogue whereby we could communicate and but that you know that took uh that took nine months of um of living again like without water electricity so we had to shower in the sea and um, myself and them were having romantic candlelit dinners for a while <laughs> and um you know we didn't we didn't have our, our our business that we we loved and we were passionate about so we were without means for, for income and also just morally it was it was crushing you know to, to feel as if you were uh, doing something that was a real um, asset and, and contribution to, to the city that wasn't really being understood or, or you know appreciated after a period of nine months anyhow we um, we reached a, a place whereby uh, there was a bit more of an understanding and um, there was a, a hefty fee to pay um, to just to get our reconnection back um, but we were also told that um, we had to remove um, all boards from our house, all surfboards, because if there were more than 10 surfboards in our house, regardless of wh- whether they belonged to myself and Dan, and our, our quiver alone, a collection of your surfboards called your quiver, um, was more than 10, because we, <laughs> we, we like having lots of different boards of different conditions. So we were going, wow, like, what are we going to do with our surfboards? So I had to I had to literally take half of my boards, and he had to take half of his, and I had to <laughs> I had to put them um, at my brother's house. I'd store them so that when they came for inspection, you know, they could come into my room and see that I didn't have over ten boards because that was classified as, as running a business per se. 
Um, so we did that, paid our, our fee, and, um, and then we got our utilities back. It was lucky that it happened when it did, because this was like, was June at this point? It was getting hot. <laughs> we needed AC for sure. Yeah. At least now we were kind of back to civilized living conditions. Yeah. That was the first point for us. Surely this wasn't easy. I mean, how did you keep yourselves going when finding the solution took nearly a year? Look, it, it definitely tested your, you know, our resolve or sort of intestinal fortitude at times, having no money and still just working really, really hard without any, um, you know, any return on it whatsoever. It was, it was really testing and, and not knowing whether we'd ever actually find a solution in a sense. You know, it was kind of no, no necessary light at the end of the tunnel. It, it was just surfing had become so intertwined with my core of, of who I was. It, it's almost like blind faith that you'll just like, you know, it's your reason for being. So it's the only thing you know how to do is to carry on fighting for that. How many other people would maybe like live here for two or three years and never even know that you could surf here? And what I've seen happen to people's lives when they do like first learn how to surf or catch that wave, that's the wave for them. It sets them off on such a different trajectory for their lives, like in many different senses from where they choose to live for the way they think about this planet. You know, and, and how they, they're almost their priority list of what's important in life, it shifts. And most of the time when I see it, it's for the better. It's a positive shift. So that, that's like a, a huge, like, I think, net impact that would have been like such a shame to, to let just fade away. Yeah. You know, I think those are the things that kept us anchored in to, to persevere until we sorted it out. Actually, this wasn't the first time that Surf House had dealt with adversity of this kind. In the early days, surfing was seen as a dangerous sport. Not just in the UAE, but even in countries like Argentina. In early 2009, they banned surfing on, on Sunset Beach. Like, all of a sudden, our core business activity is, you know, is against the law. I didn't feel as if I was doing anything wrong. I didn't feel as if I was breaking the law. So we just carried on surfing. And, and each, each time, our fines would double because we'd be like, oh, Scott. <laughs> this is your third offense, the same crime. We had to go to um, Dubai Municipality and find out what was the reasoning, what was the logic behind that. The first thing that we were met with was, look, it's a public beach, surfing, jet skiing, it's all very dangerous when you're on a beach that's swimming. And like that immediately went, okay, let's just like start from the beginning. Okay, there's no motors on surfboards. And what was happening actually is there were no lifeguards on the beach at the time. Because there was like 50 people in the water when it was rough, and then you'd have the occasional swimmer get into trouble, we were rescuing, rescuing sorry, between 40 to 50 people. We're making tallies of it every winter. And, and we took that data to them as well. And we said, hey, look, part of what surfers do, you know, you care for other people and see it's part of the surfer code. I've got a scrapbook of all the press uh, releases where it was, you know, us being fined, um, people breaking uh, the public beach regulations, and then the point where... It came out in the National, and it was some horrendous title. Like On October 2nd, 2009, the headline read, Surfers to get gnarly in Dubai. So it's always a Hollywood cliche whenever surfing comes to the press. Yeah, so we kind of had that chapter where we, we got surfing to be um, you know, legalized in the beach, and you know, credit to them, it took some time. And now we have a dedicated surf zone on the beach. So from being ringleaders of the surfer movement in Dubai to standing up to what can only be described as tremendous adversity... We finally come to the next chapter of Surf House, the rebuilding phase. The point after normalcy had finally returned. 
it was July of uh, summer 2013. I was driving along here, and at this point, you know, just pretty depressed and um, feeling kind of, you know, down and out about things, pretty strung out. Everybody gets depressed summertime, and, and that on top of it, just to compound it, was, what am I doing with my life, you know? And uh, I was driving along right over here, actually, down this road. I saw the there was a string of shop fronts just built and a sign outside saying, you know, for rent. And I thought to myself, well, that's not as close as we were to the beach, but it's, um, you know, it might be close enough and thought, okay, right, let me just find out how much it is and, and whether we can maybe run that kind of a business out of it. And I met the landlord that same afternoon at Jamar Beach Hotel. He told me that the price on the, the shop front, which was about 350 square foot, um, was, <laughs> yeah, um, just shy of uh, half a million dirhams um, for a small spot, you know. And I instantly knew that for our kind of business where our equipment, our stock takes up a lot of size. It's not a business that generates huge revenues. That just wasn't viable. So I said, thanks very much. Uh, and I had to look at his kind of plot drawing and behind those shots was this larger space, a much larger villa. And I asked him if that was also available for rent. And he explained he, he hadn't planned to. That's not why he'd, uh, he'd come to, to meet me. But if I was really interested, he'd consider it because it belonged to his father. And then he started asking a little bit more about my business. And when I told him my name, he went, oh, you're Scott. You're the, the, beach, the wave guy that, that, um, that had his house shut down from the beach. He knew about me and Dan. And he knew what had happened. And he goes, oh, yeah. He's like, you've had a bit of a rough ride, haven't you? <laughs> so he goes, oh, I see. He's like, and, and that you know, then made him understand why that shop was not the right f space or fit for me. And uh, I said, what's the rent for that villa, the biggest spot? And again, he said something that was, you know, was way outside of what I knew to be viable for this kind of a business. And uh, on the spot though, I, I kind of went, right, let me just back of a napkin, spitball numbers of what I think would be the ceiling, you know, and just just bear it all and say, look, this is what I think that we could we could come up with yeah, at the end of the year. It was around half of what his asking price was. <laughs> Maybe a little less than half. And uh, and I asked him, must have been my lucky day, or he had a good feeling, but he said, yeah, right, and he shook my hand and he gave us a three-year contract that afternoon for the villa. So, uh, yeah, God bless him, because without establishing a new space, I feel like the community would have just kind of without a focal, an epicenter for it, it would have really taken a hit. I don't think it could ever die completely because once a kind of critical mass of people love something that much, I think it'll always sort of find a way to grow, but it would have certainly taken a real hit and it would have been such a shame um, to have spent, you know, the good part of nearly a decade and, uh, and have it kind of taken away. So that was the beginning of chapter three. Yeah. We had maybe tripled our overheads now compared to to how we were running initially. And that's the point where, again, I, I sort of said that it was exactly what we needed because I feel as if we, where the community was going, we had almost, in a sense, physically outgrown our initial space. It, it, it could have carried on, but I love now that we had that challenge thrown because it meant that we had to really, really like really knuckle down and, and hard graph for another few years so that we could 
build a, a bigger and stronger foundation to accommodate being able to serve that many more people, which is what I what I hope has happened in the last um, four years being being here. And at that point too, we also had to relook at the business in terms of um, we had to go we had to go out and search for investment to be able to um, just afford the rent to begin with the initial stock, uh, and that was a huge um, learning curve for us because all of a sudden we had to look at what we'd been doing in a very different way. Um, it's a you know a head and heart thing when you bring in other people to your business. Um, how much of it are you willing to give away? How much of it do you need to give it away? All of a sudden, you're putting a value on a brand that you've built up, and it's not a science, you know, valuing a business like that. It's it's an art form, I think. So when you put a few more cooks in the kitchen, you've got a ton of opinions, and and it was a process that took a long time. That's what happened in 2013, and we started the build on the Surfhouse 2.0, as we call it in-house. Yeah. Every business comes with a risk profile. And for Surfhouse, this risk is very physical and very real. Reconciling your core business against an ever-developing city and a narrowing coastline. What if all the waves are gone? Actually, when we started surfing here, there was uh, none of the, very little of the construction offshore developments. So we had waves that ran along the entire stretch of coastline uninterrupted. And then with the, um, the construction of the palm, all the three palms, and the world islands, that blocked about 80 to 90% of the natural swell which reached the coastline. So all of a sudden, it wasn't just about <coughs> allowing surfing on, on public beaches, but it was the fact that this was the only public beach left that still had waves. So it was also saying, you know, let, let's have a look at the entire stretch of UAE coast and appreciate that waves are a natural resource in a sense. Um, you know, they, they bring industry and they bring travel and things. And... Um, it's an important thing to preserve, like what you have left of. So that's absolutely another another aspect that um, you know was something of a, of a concern. And you know, when we run our risk register for the company, yeah. one of those things is certainly what happens if all of the waves are gone, if they they build you know along the entire coast. The flip side to it as well, uh, the Pearl Jumeirah, which has Nikki Beach Hotel, yeah. that was actually a uh, a kind of happy coincidence whereby. Because they built that development two kilometers out at sea, the way that the breakwater was formed and the way that the beach lies, it actually has the best wave um, on this stretch of coast. So a man wa- man-made wave created, uh, which didn't exist before. And and we actually have a location there. Uh, the surf house is inside Nikki Beach Hotel, and um, we offer our, our surf and, and sup lessons there. Yeah, we we have a like a small sort of surf house there. And, uh, and the waves are good, so that's kind of a, a contingency. If, if we have no more swell here, we've still got a, a surfing spot there. Surfhouse is now an established focal point, a hub, not just for the sport itself, but also for the community, for training and lessons, for ancillary activities such as yoga, and even a cafe focused on high hydrating and high energy post-surfing grub. That's always been the goal. Just I just call us all evangelists. At the end of the day, it's it's not it's such a simple thing. Um, it, it's it's not complicated. And all we've been doing is just saying, hey, look, this is the thing that we found 
we're fortunate to find early in our lives. And we're just spreading the word of how, how nice it is as a, as a practice in one's life. Um, and the goal has always been to let as many people as possible know that you can do that here. It's, it's an environmentally friendly activity. Um, it's not expensive. It's not hard. And there's longevity in it too. You can surf into your 70s, you know. Um, so things always, it was never like a, a rapid growth. It was always like brick by brick. We were, we were learning along the way. And it was cool to see that as soon as someone had the first surf lesson, they got very hungry about all of the other elements that made up a you know, surfer or waterman's lifestyle. So they would come like wanting to know about equipment, wanting to know how they could improve their surfing and performance in the water by doing yoga or traveling for surfing. And then we just kind of became like a like an embassy, like a hub for just again, like spreading information and knowledge. Every every day like one of our core values is embracing the new. Like that's that's one of our things that we um it's it's a balance between uh I think like preserving and and paying homage to the roots of something and the origins and at the same time being like flexible of mind uh to to always be open to look at new things that may be of a benefit to the lifestyle or the sport. So we're just we're lucky that we get to meet so many different businesses and people all the time that you know come to us the new ideas and if something comes to us that sort of ticks our boxes and it's in line with our core values and we feel that we could like execute it effectively and it makes business sense then we take it to the next step and and we'll look at it so the co-work space that we're in right now that's one we saw a, a need that you know life today working life for most people is so different to how it used to be and and we had this space available we wanted a place where we could kind of get more of quiet time because we were all working downstairs and the cafe gets like crazy busy to to actually uh focus sometimes so yeah we we did this and you know it was was an easy setup the room was already kind of um designed and uh yeah so right now no other uh, immediate plans for a, a bigger second location or anything at all we're just happy continually refining the lifestyle idea yeah, again, being one of the only ones, yeah. we're, we're very fortunate that um, we're very easy to find online. And people daily, actually, um, before coming here, they reach out and they get in touch and they'll make their booking before they even land uh, because they want to get in the water straight away when they get here. You know, they're here for a couple of days. They can look onto our website and see our surf forecast and be like, oh, this swell during my trip. So I'm going to book the six hour surfboard and you know for friday morning at eight and that's very cool um seen over the last few years especially um some kind of figureheads of the industry uh pass through and instantly find us and come and kind of it'll be just a like a monday afternoon and uh sometimes you know they don't want to announce that they're coming in and they just come in and they spend the whole day hanging out here and they're like happen to be one of our um like childhood idols like legend hall of famers and in the end, it's that love for surfing that remains paramount, that shines through Scott's entire story, tackling that first, 10th, 20th, that 50th wave. When you go in the ocean um, amongst waves and when you're, when you're surfing, uh, it, it just like, it's incredible how it has this effect of you're able to, you know, f- forget the, the worry um, and, and strife that may be going on around you and it's like a a renewable source of just you go in you come out you're better for it you're happier like without fail every time it's like a tonic it gives you a zeal for life 
Thank you so much for listening. We've got a new episode lined up for you in a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, do tell your friends about the show. Leave us a review as it really helps us out. Thank you.